as we uh, continue in the uh, app series, there's an app that I believe needs to be downloaded, if not at least updated in the life of the church. And that is the app of integrity. Because if we lack integrity, we lack power. A few years ago in Time Magazine, the headline read, Whatever Happened to Ethics? It's become a running joke, at least to me, of how many senators and congressmen are taken before the Ethics Committee for violating the law and breaking the law, and they still get to be in charge to set the laws. That seems to be a mockery of our legal system and of our Constitution. When you read of Ponzi schemes and corruption in politics and even within the church, of frivolous lawsuits and sexual scandals, no wonder this country is in trouble. And until we return to integrity, we're going to be in trouble. You see, the world loves a bad story. It takes a while for a good story to spread. You know, somebody doing something positive rarely makes the news. But if you trip up or if you blow it or if you get involved in some scandal, it'll make the news. Because the world loves bad news. It's almost as if we feed off of it. The issue is we lack the power in the church today to speak to issues that the church needs to speak to because we have so compromised our lives. There's a lack of distinctiveness in the body of Christ. We're called to be salt of the earth, but apparently we are not salty enough to impact government or society or even the communities in which we live. We are called to be the light of the world, but apparently our light is so dim that the darkness keeps rolling across our land. Now we're in Proverbs, and there's one key verse we're going to look at in Proverbs, but I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 1. Toward the end of your Bible, in 1 John chapter 1, I want you to turn there. One of the verses will be on the screens, but the others will not. And so I want you to see this picture of what happens when we compromise integrity. In other words, when there is hypocrisy or duplicity in our lives. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. 1 John 1 and verse 5, because you see, if we lose our values, we lose our voice. First John 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now John mentions three things here about what hypocrisy does. Number one, hypocrisy begins in lying to other people. It begins when I start telling other people a lie, when I start living a lie in front of other people, when our decisions contradict the Word of God. 
when our choices contradict the Word of God, when we use things like this, well, I've prayed about it or I have a peace about it. But if you've prayed about something and have a peace about it and it does not line up with the Word of God, then you're lying to people. You're, you're lying to people because God doesn't give us a peace about something that does not line up with His Word. Secondly, there's lying to ourselves and believing it. Lying to ourselves and believing it. By the way, you can tell yourself something so long you'll believe it's the truth. You, you could right now say, you know, I have a PhD from a certain university, and you could say it to enough people so many times, and you could say it so long that you'd actually begin to believe you actually have a PhD from that place. Because you've lied to people so long, and you lie to yourself, and you start believing it. Hypocrisy now becomes duplicity. And we begin to cover up, because then when you cover up, you've got to remember, now, what, lie, what was the last lie I told? Because i got to remember that one when I tell my next lie because I can't forget the lie that I just told. You know, when you tell the truth, you never have to remember what you said. Amen. This is duplicity. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. By 1 John 1, 8, just write Matthew 5, 18. These people draw me to draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And then we can lie to God, and when we do that, in essence, we are calling God a liar. That's what he says in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so you've got three things, lying to other people, lying to ourselves, and lying to God. That's hypocrisy, duplicity, and apostasy. Because once you start lying to God, you're on the path to apostasy, to a falling away from the faith. Martin Luther said the ultimate proof of the sinner is that he does not know it does not know his own sin. I would say the ultimate proof of the sinner in the church is we don't own up to our own sin. Amen. We don't repent of our own sin, knowing the grace of God, knowing the forgiveness of God. Yet we come and we play and we pretend and we wear our mask. And before long, you know, we started out hot for God. We started out on fire for God. And then things begin to slip in and we begin to compromise and, and loosen up and say, well, you know, I don't want to be like, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't want somebody to think I'm a holy roller. Listen, I had met many people that I think are holy rollers. And we begin to back up and compromise. And before you know it, we're not only lying to others, we're lying to ourselves. And we're coming to church and hearing the Word, and the Word is trying to get into our hearts, and we're not listening to it, but we believe we're okay with God. And then we'll do it so long that we'll lie to God, and we'll call Him a liar and say, I'm not a sinner. I'm not as bad as that person over there. I'm not as bad as him. I've never done as much as they've done. I'm not as guilty as they are. And we'll start lying to God when God says, you're a sinner, and you need to repent. We'll say, no, I don't. That's not me. He's talking to somebody else. And we play spiritual basketball with the Word of God, and we throw it around and throw it over our shoulders because we don't want to be caught holding it. 
The church is to be God's primary instrument in putting things back together. There's a definition of integrity in your notes. The Oxford English Dictionary uses words that come from the Latin word meaning wholeness or entireness, completeness. The root word is integer, which means untouched, intact, entire. Now on the screen, you'll see these words from Jesus, and I believe they are the most profound words of Jesus on integrity. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, and you could also add to that, you can't serve God and yourself. You can't serve God's agenda and your agenda. That's a lack of integrity. So what, what are the three signs of a person with integrity? Number one, a person with integrity has a single heart. A single heart. We're in the world, we are not of it. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we're one-hearted. We're not divided. Secondly, not only a single heart, but a single mind. James says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. In other words, if we're not single-minded, we're going to be unstable. We're going to be unstable in our decision-making, in our parenting, in our choices, in our morals, in our values, in our ethics, if we're double-minded. If we think that God is gray about what he has said, then we are double-minded. God has spoken, and as one person said, he has not stuttered. Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Paul said, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Now, let me just give you a thought here on the single mind before we go to the next one. The person who never sells out, listen, the person who never sells out to Jesus will ultimately sell out to something or someone else. If you don't sell out to Jesus, if he is not Lord of your life, you will at some point along life's journey, you will sell out and compromise to something or someone else. It could be an affair. It could be an addiction. It could be a career. And you will sacrifice something or someone in your life if you don't sell out to Jesus. I was at a wedding yesterday up in North Georgia, and I loved what the preacher said at that wedding. He said, he said to the groom, she doesn't want to be first on your list. She is your list. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is not number one in trying to hold on to that ranking. He's number one, he's boss, he's Lord, or he's nothing. He can't be Lord of some areas and not Lord of others. He's either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Single-minded. And then a single will. A single will. That's focus and that's purpose. It's a renewed mind. It's a new, renewed will. Now, now here's what you got to understand, and then we're going to go to Proverbs 24. Here's what you have to understand. If you and I are not committed to downloading and constantly updating the app of integrity in our lives, we will compromise, and we will willingly compromise, and we will willfully justify our compromise. Now, that just doesn't affect you. It affects everybody you come in contact with. 
Because if they see you compromising, then they think, well, I've got a right to compromise. I've got a right to do that. I've got a right to sell out in that area of my life. You see, and not only that, it affects your children. Listen, you've heard this before. You need to chisel it in granite. What you do as a parent in mediocrity, your children will do in excess. You say, I'm an occasional drinker. I'm just a social drinker on occasion. Your kids will be more likely to be alcoholics. What you do, if you flirt with other women, you will raise a son who uses women. Hear me. I've been at this a long time. This is not my first rodeo. I've watched too many men and women blow it and lose their testimony and lose their families because they thought they could compromise in some areas of their life. And they thought they could get away with it. And the arrogance, the absolute arrogance of thinking, I can tell God what I'm going to do and not do is not the use of free will. It is the voice of Satan of hell inside your life. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 21. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change. Now we're going to look at what that verse means in just a minute. But quickly, I want us to look at four areas where integrity is non-negotiable. First of all, integrity in character. Integrity in character. Just for the sake of time, write down Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. That you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That above reproach, blameless, is God's standard for integrity. Not sinless. We're not perfect. We're not sinless. We're going to blow it. But when the life is looked at as a whole, we're above reproach. We don't put ourselves out there in situations where somebody says, man, I tell you, I thought that person was a Christian. You see, the cross life, the death to self life, the crucified life is the life of integrity. Oswald Chambers said, the test of a man's religious life and character is not what he does in the exceptional moments of life, but how he reacts when made to face the implications of the cross. Let me just update that. The test of a man's character is not how you behave and refresh. It's not the decision you make at youth camp on Thursday night. It's not the prayer you prayed at Disciple Now. It's when you're on a date alone and your parents aren't there. That's the test of integrity. It's what you do when you're offered a business deal that can make you more money if you just turn your head the other way. That's when your character is tested. The implications of the cross. Tozer said it this way. The old cross slew men. The new cross entertains them. The old cross condemns. The new cross amuses The old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh. The new cross encourages it. The old cross brought tears. The new cross brings laughter. A great verse for you to teach your children and to apply to yourself is Romans 14, 7. No one lives to himself. 
No one lives to himself. There's the integrity in conduct. The Scripture tells us that Enoch pleased God, that Job said, my witness is in heaven. The early disciples shared the gospel and changed the world because of the integrity of their life and the integrity of their message. John says in one of his epistles, as he is, so are we in this world. Nine words, three phrases. If you want to know how to evaluate your life on a Monday morning and on a Friday afternoon, just ask yourself, did my life during these last five days characterize and symbolize and exemplify those words? As he is, so are we in this world. And if it didn't, then don't beat yourself up about it. Confess it. Get it right. Ask God to give you the power to live in the Holy Spirit so that you're not making those same mistakes and errors in judgment over and over and over again. You see, the reality is this. In our conduct, the reputation... Now, this is frightening. (laughs) The reputation of this church in this region is on you and on me. It's not just the pastor. And I don't even want to tell you how many times I've had people say to me in this community, well, I met a member of your church. Not much of a member. The reputation of God in your family is on you. As the leader of your home, as a man, our conduct touches people at a thousand points. It would be like taking a feather pillow and cutting it open and in a 30-mile-an-hour wind throwing it up in the air and letting those feathers go everywhere. You could say, I'm sorry that I let those feathers out, but you'll never collect all of them. And how we behave and how we act and how we respond and the choices we make matter. Because here's the deal, folks, and if you don't get this, and if you don't hear anything else I say today, how you live in this community, everybody in this community that knows you judges me and everybody in this room by you. And so if you're not living consistent, they think all of us are jerks. So it is imperative that as a church, as the body of Christ, if we want a witness in this community, that nobody can say of us, well, man, if you meet those members, you don't want to go there. Our conduct should be above reproach. That means three things. We need to be transparent in our sincerity. We don't need to just say, hey, I love you, love this town, love this region, love people. We need to be transparent in our sincerity. No faces, no facades that we're real. Secondly, we need to be upright in our walk. We need to be upright in our walk. And thirdly, we need to be righteous in our works. Righteous in our works. The old hymn says, more about Jesus. Let me learn more of his holy will discern. Spirit of God, my teacher be showing the things of Christ to me. Thirdly, integrity and convictions. Conviction is an unshakable belief 
in something without need of further proof. You see, I don't need God to prove himself to me any more than he already has. He proved himself to me on the cross. And I don't need him to jump through a hoop or give me a sign or give me a fleece for me to know that he is who he says he is. Conviction means I don't need any more proof. I've got all the proof I need. And God has spoken in this book. And he has given us his word. Duncan Campbell was asked, why the Hebrides? Why did revival come to the Hebrides? How could it have come and why did it last so long? And Campbell talked about the sovereign work in revival of God, but he also talked about it came upon a people who had not been robbed of their belief in the absolute authority of the Word of God. Now, here's what I know has happened in this church in 22 years. In 22 years, the wear and tear of life and the impact of this world on us as a body of believers has made some of us start compartmentalizing what part of the Word we want to believe and act on and what part we want to ignore and argue about. Revival never comes to a church, never comes to a people who are trying to figure out how little of God's Word they can obey. It will never happen. The glory of God will never fall if there are times in our lives when we have not made our faith a living faith in a living Word from a living Lord. If we want to see God work and move like He wants to work and move, then he has to awaken us to the implications of treating his word lightly. One young lady laid on the floor in the revival Hebrides and cried out in the church and said, God, hell is too good for me. My sins are like mountains, but your mercy is great. And in that mercy, I trust. Can I tell you something? Hell's too good for us. What we need is mercy, and we find mercy in humility and in integrity. Here's what happened with the preaching of the Word during the Hebrides revival. First of all, it, the God's Word brings its own conviction. God's Word, these are not going to come up on the screen. God's Word brings its own conviction. God's Word doesn't need a commentary. God's Word by itself on its own brings conviction. That's why you want your kids to memorize Scripture because when they memorize Scripture, then the Word of God in their heart and in their mind will affect their will because they can't get away from what is hidden in their heart and in their mind. God's Word brings conviction. Secondly, God's worth brings conviction in an atmosphere birthed in prayer. It has to be birthed in prayer. Prayer and the Word of God are two key essentials, essentials when God moves. It, it's reinforced by an authoritative message. Now, I'll chase a rabbit for 35 seconds. When the pastor of one of the largest churches in this country gets on television 
and says Mormons are Christians, they're just different kinds of Christians than we are, that's not an authoritative word from God. That is a compromise and a sellout, and that man is gutless. I don't care how many times he goes to the dentist and gets his teeth polished. He's a coward, if he is even saved. You say, well, he uses the Bible. Yeah, a lot of people use the Bible. A lot of people use the Bible. It's not about using the Bible. It's about having an authoritative message. Listen, you may not be happy every time you hear me preach, but one thing you're going to know, you're going to know where I stand. Amen. You're not going to have to work, walk out and say, I wonder if he's for or against that. I don't know. But he's so sweet. <laughs> hey, I want to be sweet, but I want to tell you something. When I die, I don't want you looking around saying, I'm not sure where he stood on that issue. You know what that is called? That's called a politician. Where do you stand on this issue? What are the poll numbers reading? You see, the authoritative Word of God doesn't take a poll to see how people feel about it. God does not adjust because it makes us uncomfortable. We adjust because He makes us uncomfortable if we don't live up to His Word. And then it's proclaimed with personal conviction. Matthew 7, 29, he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The scribes always tried to quote other people to make them sound like they had authority. Jesus said, I don't need to quote anybody else. I'm my own authority. 1 John 3, 7 says, the one who practiced righteousness is righteousness, just as he, righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. 2 Corinthians 6, 17, therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. My mentor, Vance Havner, used to say, people come to me and ask me, can I do this and still be a Christian? Can I do this and still be a Christian? Can, can I do this and still be a Christian? And I loved what Havner said, and it is, by the way, my answer too. He said, you're asking the wrong question. He said, what you're really asking is, how much like hell can I be and still go to heaven? And you know what? There are people sitting in this room right now, and you're trying to figure out how much like the world you can be, and when you get to heaven, God doesn't kick you out. Wrong way of thinking. In fact, that is a slap in the face of Jesus who shed his blood for you. To even think, how far can I go outside the will of God and not be disciplined? How far can I go outside the will of God and outside the word of God and God not rebuke me or discipline me or correct me or chastise me? Wrong questions. But folks, God's serious about what he says. Now, when you tell your children to do something, do you expect them to do it? Or are you just talking to see the air warm up? I mean, when you say to your kids, hey, don't touch that. Don't go, don't do that. Leave her alone. I mean, do you want your children, whether they're two or five or 15 or 35, do you, do, do you want them to say, I don't have to listen to you. 
I mean, then do you go into your mode? Do you know who put this roof over your head? Do you know who puts that food on the table in front of you? you know who gave you a bed to sleep in? you know who buys all those clothes for you? you know who bought those toys? Do you want to have a Christmas this year? <laughs> right now, naughty is beaten nice, and I'm not sure you're going to get anything. No, when you tell your kids something, why? You tell them because you have rules and expectations and you want them to act properly. God, our Father, tells us what He tells us, not because He's trying to rain on our parade, but because He knows when we obey Him, life is good. And life is blessed. And we have His protection and His guidance. It is when we disobey him and get out from under his protection that we get ourselves in trouble. Conviction. And then integrity in conflict. So I want you to get to Proverbs 24, 21, and I want you to see the end of this verse. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change. The message paraphrases that. Don't be defiant or mutinous. Here's what the word means in the Hebrew. The verb means to disguise yourself as something different than you are. We just came out of Halloween. You know, kids put on masks and all this kind of... To disguise yourself as something different than you are. What, What is Halloween? Halloween, you wear costumes to pretend to be something different than you are. And and what Proverbs says is don't associate with those who are given to mutinous behavior, who change their attitude, who change their character, who pretend to be something that they are not. Wow. How does that affect your social network? Man, I got 14,000 friends on Facebook. Name them. (laughs) Some of you, if you went through your Facebook page and you saw the post of some of the people that are on your page that are identified as your friends and they look at you and then they go ask your friends to be their friends, some of you would cut your Facebook friends in half, if not more, because you are being identified with people who are wearing masks and who are lying about their lives. They're playing a game. And that's not the kind of friends you want. Because those kind of friends make you do these kind of poses. Because <laughs> they lead you on the path of destruction driven to change. During the Hebrides revival, one midnight, the enemy was attacking, and one of the young men rose to his feet and began to call on God to fulfill his covenant engagement and to vindicate his name. And he kept repeating Isaiah 59, 19, in the west they'll fear the name of God. In the east they'll fear the glory of God, for he will arrive like a river in flood stage, whipped to a torrent by the wind of God. Exodus 18, 21 says, You shall select out all the people, able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. 
You see, I believe that God's working in a church and God's working in a life. God's working in a family and God's working in revival are all a sovereign work of God. But in reality, it's a sovereign work of God with our cooperation. Or as E.M. Bounds said, the church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. This week, I, uh, Jay Flint went with me, and we went to the state of Mississippi, uh, where I grew up, and went to the state convention. About 2,000 people there at First Baptist Church, Jackson, Mississippi. Most of them pastors and pastors' wives were there. And I talked about the battle that must be won. Now, preached out of 1 Thessalonians on the battle that we have to win. We cannot afford to lose this battle. And it's a state convention. I mean, you know, 20 minutes before me, they're voting on the budget. I mean, it's just a, a two-day business meeting is what it is, which, I mean, who really wants to go to that? Two days of business meeting. Some of you come out of churches like that. And so I was the last speaker in the last session. And so we were running late because, you know, people had to thank people for their awards and for everything else and for their plaques and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you had to make sure you recognize people so they don't get their feelings hurt because their feelings are more important than let's just move on. And so I leaned over to the guy next to me and I said, when do I need to be through? He said, when you're done. I said, you don't need to tell me that. <laughs> Telling me when you're done may mean you're going to be here after lunch. He said, no, when you're done. And I, I am so grateful because there were people all around this church that were praying for me. But when we got to the invitation, I mean men started getting up and pastors started getting up and coming to the altar. And they were weeping and they were crying out to God and they were repenting and confessing. And before you know it, First Jackson has an altar much bigger than this one and further back. And it was covered with men, and they were backed up into the aisles. And I said, if you can't get down here, just stand up. And there are 200 men standing up all around that auditorium, all the way back in the balcony. They're just, they're just standing up and saying, I, I'm just tired of being where I am. I'm tired of the kind of church that I'm in. I'm tired of the life that I live. I'm just tired of this. I want God to do something in my life. And at the end of it, there were plaques to present and people to recognize and people to honor. And the president of the convention got up and did what a wise man would do when people had been crying out out loud to God and asking him to move in their midst. He said, you know, he said, we've got some other business that we need to do. He said, we're going to suspend with business because this is the note we need to end on. We've been on our knees We've cried out to God, and this is the note we need to end on. And so before we dismissed, they called up a Mississippi Highway Patrolman who was big. I mean, he was 6'6 and about 270, and he's the kind of guy when he pulls you over, even if you're not guilty, you start throwing your wallet and your insurance card at him. <laughs> and he got up to pray, and he wept through his prayer. I mean, he could not hardly get a word out of his mouth, weeping, praying for God to move and to work. 
You see, that's what God's looking for. He's looking for people that have the integrity that when they call out to God and expect God to vindicate his name and come in glory and come in power and come in conviction, God's not saying, are you kidding me? Have you looked at your own life? Do you know what I see in you? How can I answer you when you're not even living up to what you're asking for? So I want to ask you to stand with heads bowed and eyes closed. And here's my question and here's the invitation. Do you have integrity in your profession of faith? You may say you're saved, but do you have the integrity that what you say with your lips is actually what God has done in your heart? If you do not, then I'm going to invite you to find one of these ministers at the end of the aisle and to tell them I need to be saved today. Do you have integrity in your profession when you say, I'm a member of Sherwood Baptist Church? But is your life causing people to question if we really believe God and if we really love God? Is there an inconsistency in your life? Is there a a fatal flaw that's in your life that is keeping you from having the power of God on your life? And then the last question is, do we have the integrity as a church that God can trust us with a move from heaven? Do we have the integrity individually and corporately? Do we have the integrity as a church that God can trust us with a move, a mighty move of his spirit? Every week there are a thousand members of this church that never show up. Some of them never show up, underline never, because their profession of being a member of the church, which implies a profession of being a Christian, doesn't mean enough to them to get out of bed, even when they've had a chance to get an extra hour of sleep. They've got other plans. They've got other agendas. And folks, if we're going to see God work in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our community, then we must have integrity in what we say and in what we do. We must have it so that God can trust us with a great work. So I'm going to pray, and then these altars are open. They're open right now, but they're open for us to say, Lord, I want to live in front of my family. I want to live in front of my friends, my business associates, a life of integrity. Father, I ask you in Jesus' name that you would help us to understand the seriousness of the hour in which we live. In a, in a world filled with scandals and compromise and indifference to compromise, make us the salt and the light that we are intended to be. Not fribble, frivolous about it, not compromised in it, not occasional in it, but day in and day out, week in and week out, the direction, the passion of our life is to live with integrity. Lord, we're in an integrity crisis. We can't believe what anybody says anymore. But we can believe what you say. That there's a heaven and a hell. There's a judgment coming of our works as believers, of the life of people who are not believers. And your word is true. 
And so in light of your word, may we respond today. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. People are coming as we sing. As the choir sings, you come. Just as I am.